Thank you so much, Pastor Rick and the elders, for the opportunity to teach on a hot-button subject, the subject of wokeness. There is a great deal to say about this subject, and we will be having a, a Q&A, as Pastor Rick mentioned, in a couple weeks. So I would ask, if you're coming in and you have questions about what I say, or nuances, or applications, things I don't manage to cover in this 39-minute session on the most hot-button issue of our day that you factor in that we will have a Q&A. I welcome questions. I want to handle this issue well and think through this with you in a gracious, charitable, Christian, convictional, biblical way. So know that that is coming not next week, Easter week, but two weeks from today. I recently learned online of a Coca-Cola training session on whiteness in February 2021, led by Robin D'Angelo, the author of the book White Privilege, which is everywhere. This Coca-Cola training session encouraged its viewers to, quote, try to be less white, end quote. Try to be less white. What does it mean to be less white, according to Robin D'Angelo? Here's what she said. She herself is white. It's to be less oppressive, be less arrogant, be less certain, be less defensive, be less ignorant, be more humble, listen, believe, break with apathy, and break with white solidarity. End quote. What was taking place in this LinkedIn training session that Coca-Cola employees had to view? Simply this. The system I call wokeness was advancing. But what is wokeness? Built off of critical race theory, CRT, and in accordance with what is called intersectionality, wokeness uses theological language and even the very system of Christian theology albeit without any need for grace or for God. Wokeness is essentially a mindset and a posture. So when we're talking about wokeness, we do indeed mean what critical race theory would teach us. We also mean what intersectionality would advocate. But we mean something broader. We mean something akin to the term Marxism. Marxism, which was very hot in the mid-20th century and was very influential in that century, resulting in millions and millions of deaths in different countries, was a formal body of doctrine. It did boil down to certain ideas, but it was bigger than just a few ideas or a few books. It was even more a mindset, a mood, a posture, and I think that is true today of this movement I call wokeness. The term itself means that you are awake. You're awake to the true nature of the world. You see that our social order is shot through with racial and social injustice. And when you are woke, or when you buy into CRT, that is what you now see. You see that the social order you thought was normal, and yes, in no way perfect, in no way heavenly, 
but you thought it was basically normal. You thought America was, by and large, a country that had made significant progress since the days of slavery and Jim Crow and segregation and and different problems that local communities faced along those lines. You thought, you grew up in a context where you thought that order had basically passed. And yes, we always have to fight sin, of course, including the sin of racism or, more broadly, partiality. But yet, this country and the Christian church, to talk about the group that most concerns us, had made real progress. Wokeness says no. America has not made real progress. You need to wake up. You need to get woke. And when you get woke, you will see that this order that you thought was just and you thought had made progress and was at least in a better place than it used to be, is not. In this session, what I want to do is condense wokeness into seven key affirmations. You have them on your handout, and then after that, I'm going to, I think, get through nine theological affirmations that I pray in a 2 Corinthians 10 three through six cents, will destroy the stronghold of wokeness. I am not simply trying to put thoughts down on paper. We want to handle these things well and charitably and fairly, as I said a minute ago. But what I pray is that with this system, as with every ungodly ideology we face, you will not be taken captive by this system. But you will instead, 2 Corinthians 10.5, take every thought captive for the glory of Jesus Christ. So let's first look at seven key affirmations of wokeness. First, racism is ordinary, not aberrational. That's a direct quote from the book Critical Race Theory and Introduction. Racism, according to wokeness, is not only an evil word or act, you saying a terrible, slanderous, wicked word against somebody who has a different skin color than you. You need to understand that in this system, in the Coca-Cola training, and, and so on and so forth, things you're facing in your job right now, things your kids are hearing in schools right now, racism is personal in that way, but it's even more structural It's the structure of the whole society. And this is the change in wokeness from what many of us were used to in years past thinking about racism. We thought the structures of society had by and large been improved. And then we thought when we're being racist, that's when I do something intentional and clear and conscious to judge another person in, again, a thoroughly unbiblical and wicked way. But no, in wokeness... We are dealing with a public order that is shot through with structural racism, systemic racism, and systemic injustice. It's not only that individuals could do or say racist things. You must understand this. It's broadened. It's way bigger. When you're watching ESPN, when you're browsing on a Pinterest website and looking at clothes, and you see something about racial equity, 
It's everywhere today, wherever it may be. And you see something about combating racial injustice. It doesn't just mean don't say something wicked in a conversation that we all would affirm you shouldn't say or believe. It means the whole order is racist. This whole society is ordinarily racist. Second, the racism in America has a name, white supremacy. Robin DiAngelo says this, white supremacy describes the culture we live in, a culture that positions white people and all that is associated with them, whiteness, as ideal. So the connection here is this, in woke thought, D'Angelo is just about the leading light of the entire movement, has made millions from her writings and presentations. White people embody whiteness. And so they necessarily participate in a system that has white people being superior to people of color, all other people. And that means that we live in a society dominated by white supremacy. That's the result of whiteness in collective form. White supremacy, then, please understand, another major shift from what you've probably thought in days past is not the Klan burning a cross wickedly in someone's yard. White supremacy is that, but white supremacy is what you get when you get a lot of white people together. White people can't help in this system per the words of these thinkers, but transmit white supremacy. That's what the social order is. It's not a possibility. It is a white supremacist order. And if you are a white person, sometimes you see the phrase, the average white person. What is an average white person, by the way? How do you define an average white person? Is there a mean out there? Oh, no, that, she's not average white person. He is average white. Who's, what is an average white person? What is whiteness? You say, oh, whiteness is a, a body of beliefs. It's, it's a certain perspective on the world. Really? Do white people all agree on the most basic things of life? When you look at, I don't know, voting patterns among white people, do you, do you see that they all vote for the same candidate? Do they vote for the same side? Or does the data not show that actually they completely disagree in large form over their candidates? There is such a thing as skin pigmentation or lack thereof, absolutely. But is there such a thing as race? Is race a biblical concept at all? That's just a question for you to think through. I'll come back to it in just a moment. According to this system, still under the second point, ordinary people are oppressors. So the world is divided into just two categories in critical race theory and wokeness more broadly. Oppressors and oppressed. That's it. You are an oppressor not if you undertake evil actions or words. You are an oppressor if you are white or you benefit from complicity in whiteness. What does that mean? That means that you don't challenge this wicked white supremacist order. You're a person of color 
and you're in white-dominated settings and you don't try to tear them down. You don't attack white supremacy at its root when you're in that meeting, when you're in the boardroom, when you're eating lunch. You're not at all times uh, ad- adopting a posture against whiteness and white supremacy. And so you are, though you are a person of color, an oppressor by extension. People of color, according to this system, are oppressed fundamentally. Now, it's here that we need to walk with care, don't we? Because our history does show in this country absolutely tragic instances for decades, for centuries of actual evil, partial oppression of people of color. The ideology of race was created to back up the system of slavery. So that's real, and it's wicked to its core. It's it's the spirit of Antichrist. But what you have to ask is, is this society just like America of 1852? Is it the same as a, a Jim Crow law-supporting society? Is it, is it the same today as segregationist 1950s America? Or have things changed? And you're going to have to put your thinking cap on and look at data and do all sorts of things to try to figure this out as a Christian. Third, this means then that all white people are racists. This is what uh, a viral video captured in an infamous training session. A teacher named Ashley Shackelford stood before a room of women, including numerous white women, and bluntly said this. You could find this video online. All white people are racists. That's it. That's the system at its most honest. All white people are racists. And then she doubled down. White people don't have a real hope of change. Quote, no, you're always going to be racist, actually, even when you're on a path to be a better human being. She continued the point. I believe all white people are born into not being human and grow up to be demons. That's what she said. Would every woke teacher say just this? No, I don't think so. But when you're thinking about systems, you have to think where the hard edge is going, where the leading edge is, where the convictions go if they are taken seriously to their conclusion. And this is the conclusion, that all white people are racists and that they have no hope of change. There's no gospel here. There's no grace. There's no hope. There's law. There's man's law. There's condemnation. And there's division. Fourth, This means that our biggest problem is not actual racists, like the Klan or elements of the alt-right or others you could think of, but ordinary people. Ordinary people are our biggest problem. And if you'll excuse me, you are part of that problem. Many of you. Me. Ibram X. Kendi is the leading woke theorist of our time. He's a professor at Boston University. And this is what he has written in his book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And this is a stunning 
sentence. And when I read this, I knew that I needed to say something against this movement in my tiny little corner of Christian ministry. I knew that this was not just something that you were going to kid glove away. This was not something that is going to play nice. This is not a system that is playing to a draw. This is a system, Colossians 2.8, that wants to take me captive and wants to take everybody of every color, of every background captive. The most threatening racist movement, Kendi writes, is not the alt-right's unlikely drive for a white ethnostate, but the regular American's drive for a race-neutral one. What does he mean? He means that if you say something like, I don't see color, I I just treat people as human beings, or if you said a sentence like, I'm colorblind, or if you said a sentence like, these things, I'm not a racist, these things don't even... They don't, they're not even a big deal to me. I, I just, I just want to love people. I, I want to be kind to people. That is exactly what Kendi is after. Those kind of sentences that I'm guessing a good number of folks in here have said or thought is the most threatening racist movement. Why? Because you're not fundamentally woke, you understand? I don't mean that as a slur. I mean it as a technical term. You're not awake. You're not seeing racial injustice. You're not seeing that your white skin or your complicity in liking white people and not challenging their racism has created this evil white supremacist order and people are oppressed by it. The biggest problem in this system is ordinary people. The ordinary man and woman who live quiet, normal American lives And we would say these people desperately need the gospel of grace, but we would also say in a church like this that those same people are not necessarily the most threatening racist movement in America. We could be, couldn't we? Can we fall prey to partiality of every kind? Can we think wicked things along anthropological lines, human lines? Yes. Is any of us above such behavior? No. Not for a minute. You can perhaps look into your past and and see examples in your family or community or neighborhood or whatever it may be, broader society, and think that was evil. That was wrong. But the question is, is the regular American today, or if we sharpen the point, is the normal American Christian today a white supremacist? That is where the system goes. Ordinary white people are white supremacists. That's where it goes. And that's not a soft claim. This isn't a soft system. People like me, if you'll excuse me for a moment again, or Pastor Rick or the elders, who would challenge this system in love, try to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15, are not the ones seeking a fight on this count. Christians who would push back against this ideology are not the ones who want to battle and separate and divide. We are recognizing that there is, there is war on our doorstep here. And it is not just war against us if we're a leader in ministry or in the church or something like this. It is war against our families. It is war against our children. It is war against our churches. 
It is driven by evil at its core. Fifth, the solution to this condition is not regeneration, according to CRT and intersectionality and other voices. It is anti-racism and social justice. Anti-racist social justice to combine the two. What does this mean? To be an anti-racist, according to Kendi, is this. Like fighting an addiction, being an anti-racist requires persistent self-awareness, constant self-criticism, and regular self-examination. Anti-racists, to extend the point, enact social justice. Social justice is a term that's used everywhere today. Social justice is not retributive biblical justice. By that term, I mean when somebody does something wrong, they have their wrong recompensed rightly. They meet the full penalty of the law, and rightly so. That's biblical justice in a nutshell. Social justice is leftist justice. It is distributive. If you were to switch the terms, it is not equality of opportunity, as in conservative justice, or what we would say is biblical justice, in my view. It is instead equality of outcome. What I mean is we should all be living the same life. If we would just change our society, everybody would make the same salary, um, everybody would have the same advantages, and there would be no inequity, there would be no injustice. So social justice is leftist justice. It, it sees, furthermore, differences between groups in society, between, for example, races, and then it reads them as inequity. So if there's different literacy rates or different nutritional levels in communities or suicide rates or whatever it may be, it sees those differences and it reads them as inequities, examples of unequal society, and then it brands them injustices. This has most significantly happened in our country with police shootings. With police shootings occurring last summer, beginning in Minneapolis, it was argued that the police are targeting African Americans. And those instances, tragic instances of the deaths of several image bearers were read as the police, out of white supremacy, enacting a campaign of violence against black people. And that is an example of what I am talking about, seeing differences, the argument that black people are targeted, and then reading them as inequities, and then saying that that is an injustice. This is a broader matter to handle, and this is a tough matter to handle. I cover this in my book, Christianity and Wokeness. If you are interested in that book, as Rick kindly mentioned it, it comes out in July. You can find it on Amazon and pre-order it. Pre-orders are a blessing to authors. You can also look at Vody Bauckham's book, Fault Lines, which comes out in two weeks. It's an excellent book. I endorsed it. Vody Bauckham, Fault Lines. He covers police shootings as well. And in both cases, both my analysis and his, we conclude that, yes, it is awful to have people uh, die in these violent encounters, and there's always complex factors in them. And yet, if you look at actual data, uh, it, it does not bear out the argument that police are targeting people of color. Uh, in fact, some of the data goes the opposite way. 
That's a broader matter to handle, but that's a quick take on how to think through social justice. Sixth, wokeness leads to a greater vision of oppression and justice called intersectionality. Whew, I am feeling it right now, up here, with all this to get through. What does intersectionality mean? It means that there are various oppressed peoples in society, underprivileged peoples, and their justice causes intersect, though they're not the same group. Let me give you an example of several. These are oppressor-oppressed pairings in our society. Men oppress women. So you've probably seen the phrase toxic masculinity. That's born out of the view that fundamentally men oppress women. Uh, The rich oppress the poor. That's the original Marxist idea. That's why all of this wokeness is sometimes called cultural Marxism because it takes the economic framework of oppressor-oppressed. Rich person is the oppressor. Oppressed person is the poor person. And it applies it to race or to other areas of society. So rich people are fundamentally oppressors in an intersectional worldview. Physically able people oppress physically disabled people. This is called ableism. Straight people oppress sexual minorities. So if you're straight or heterosexual, then you fundamentally, these are fundamental forms of oppression, not actions or words. Please note this. Then you fundamentally oppress sexual minorities, people who choose a gay, lesbian lifestyle, for example. And adults oppress children because adults have authority. And so fundamentally, adults have this oppressive relationship to children. Can people in these categories be oppressive? Can people sin in many different ways and use authority, God-given authority, uh, in evil, evil forms? Absolutely they can. We have the doctrine of total depravity or total, uh, what did you call it? Total inability. I listened last week. It doesn't seem like I did. I was taking notes, trying to. Um, we, we understand that sin reaches into every area of our lives. So we know that there is such a thing as oppression in this world. But this is what wokeness does. It takes real problems that do occur, and it structuralizes them. It sees instances of evil, and then it says, if it's real here, it must be real everywhere. That's not a necessary conclusion, though, in many instances. There can be adults who have authority who treat their children in evil ways. But then to have authority as a father or mother does not in any way necessarily mean that you are evil in your whole parenting system towards your children. Seventh, all this means for the church that we should indict white people for their white supremacy. And there is a flood of books in the evangelical market that say just that, that say that we have to recenter or destabilize or destroy, dismantle white privilege and white supremacy. Okay, what do we have to say in response? I have nine theological points by which to oppose this system. Before I dive in, and we will indeed be diving in fast, let me say, we have to handle the claims of this system fairly and thoughtfully. And you've heard me make certain caveats as I have gone that are intentional 
that seek to show you, this is my church body, I'm not out in this instance teaching on the road to people I esteem and I'm thankful for, but I'm not going to see again, probably. This is my church body. I want you to hear me making nuances and qualifications that are necessary. And yet, you cannot let nuances and qualifications cause you to not speak convictionally and to not take every thought captive. So, in response, here are nine points that I believe we need to preach and teach and proclaim as Christians, not just those who are elders or something, but all of us. First, we're all image bearers of the living God. You see this in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Verse 26, let us make man in our image, God says, after our likeness. Every human being, by extension, is an image bearer. What does this mean? Why talk about this? Because it means that every single person is part of the human race, the one human race. That's how Scripture frames the issue on the first page of the Bible. There are not many races. There is one race. Now, there are, as Scripture goes, different ethnicities, different ethne in the Greek in the New Testament, laos, peoples. So there are Some justifications for seeing people, for example, from Ireland as having a unique background versus people from Nigeria versus people from Japan. There are going to be ethnic differences. The New Testament comprehends that, for example, in talking about Jew and Gentile. There's other things we could say there. But ethnicity does not mean that you and I are different forms of humanity. It means that we are all human people and we have a certain background. Scripture begins with unity. We are unified as the human race. Second, because of Adam's fall, hatred persists among us. Because of the real historical fall of a real historical Adam, in Genesis 3, 1 through 13, we do hate one another. What does Titus 3, 3 say? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. What does that mean? It means that it is natural to hate others. We are criminals with Adam in Eden. We are not victims of the fall. Christianity does not teach a victimhood mentality. It teaches you and I that we are our greatest problem, and the grace of God is our only solution. Change society, change neighborhoods, change communities, change education. There can be some human gains there, but the fundamental human condition is untouched because our foremost problem is our sin, not someone else's sin, our sin. Third, in this depraved state, we show what the Bible calls partiality to one another. James 2.4 speaks against this. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts in the context if you look down on a poor person and esteem a rich person? Rick preached two sermons about partiality some months back that are excellent. I commend them to you. To show partiality then is to make unnatural distinctions among ourselves and then judge others. And that is exactly what wokeness does. That is precisely what it does with saying that white people or people who benefit from whiteness 
are white supremacists or complicit in it. It is an evil, ungodly ideology that makes us partial. It makes us partial against people we don't know and, and, and we don't understand. That's our natural depraved state. This situation means that we don't have justice in this world, frequently. There is real injustice in this world as Christians that we comprehend because of our naturally depraved and partial state. This reminds us of three quick truths about justice. First, justice is first a vertical problem. The foremost justice problem in the world is not found in any society or community. It is found in our rebellion against Almighty God. That is our first justice problem. Our lack of righteousness before a holy God. Our wronging God by not worshiping him as he deserves. Secondly, justice in the biblical mind, as I have said, is fundamentally retribution. It is not taking all the wealth of society and redistributing it in fair or equal terms. That is socialism. Biblical justice is fundamentally retribution. Now, if I do something wicked to somebody else, there will be restitution that I need to make in different instances. Let that be said. But that is not the same thing as taking money and apportioning it out to make an equal society as socialism argues. Third, justice is always proximate. Part of what wokeness falls prey to as a system is that it is utopian. It is secular utopianism. It argues that if we will just become anti-racists and fight white privilege and white supremacy, then our world will be healed. Now, there are real gains and improvements we can make in our society and culture. Let that be said. We are called, Matthew 5, 13 to 16, to be salt and light, a comprehensive mission. And yet, justice is always proximate, unfinished, imperfect, not utopian. The early church did not succeed very greatly in making Rome right in undoing Roman wickedness, in undoing the Roman order. Jesus Christ himself did not do a great job in overcoming Caesar in terms of the imperial reach of the Roman order. You know why? Because that's not what he came to do in his first coming. He came to destroy the power of death, which is sin, and make atonement for the sin of all who would put their faith and trust in him. That is why he came. He did not come to make Rome. He did not come to make Rome a perfect civil order. There would be all kinds of effects of Christianity as it spread, absolutely. But that was not the mission of Christ, and that is not the mission of the church. Fourth, once in Christ, there is no condemnation for any person. This is the most important point of the entire handout. This is the most important contribution of the Christian church. This is why we have to speak into this conversation. It is a theological conversation. It is a gospel conversation. We are hearing, as I have been at pains to say, that we are condemned if we are a white person or if we do not challenge the system of white supremacy if we're a person of color. 
And I just want you to hear Romans 8, 1 afresh. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You can sin after becoming a Christian. You can fall into a pattern of sin. But you cannot be given back a condemned, guilty state before Almighty God. Because through saving faith, which justifies you before God, you are no longer condemned in Jesus Christ. The power of Christ is so great that when he dies on the cross, he washes all your sin clean. And then the power of justification, as I fight my microphone, is so great that you are not condemned the moment you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the crucified and resurrected Messiah, you are not guilty. And not just not guilty. You are innocent. When God sees you in his great cosmic courtroom, he sees an innocent person because of Christ for us. No one can condemn those God has made innocent. No one can do it. People try. Sinful humanity tries. It comes to Christians and it says, fundamentally in natural terms, by virtue of your skin color or or complicity in it, you are condemned. You think you're an evangelical. You think you're a born-again believer. But I have new words for you you are actually still partially condemned because of white supremacy. And what we have to say in response to this evil ideology is no, no, you are not condemned because of your skin color. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn the one God has made innocent. Fight sin until you die. Be aware of your sin. Be aware of the sin of partiality, including of racial kinds, other forms. But know that this cannot take place for you. But this is what wokeness advances. It is a system of law and condemnation without grace and without forgiveness. I am at my 10-15 mark, so I need to conclude... Uh, okay, I've got, I, got, I got a couple minutes of grace. See, there's, there's grace um, here, thankfully. Uh, pr- appreciate that. Okay, let's do this fast then. In, in Christ, point five, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. All are one body. It's too good to be true. Galatians 3, 27 and 28, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. No, no male and female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. This system, as I'm guessing you now understand, at least from my perspective, is an attack on oneness. It's an attack on the gospel, but it's an attack on the oneness of Christ's body. Looking at a room like this, even in a predominantly white community like this, I see diversity. Why is there diversity here? Is it because we have used Marxist philosophical tools or secular tools to try to build a more diverse church here at Mission Road? No, it is because the gospel has gone out. And the word has gone out. And God's gospel saves sinners of every kind. And that is why there is diversity. 
It is because there is neither Jew nor Greek, but all are one in Christ Jesus. We are one body. Your first and foremost identification as a Christian is not with your skin color, people of your skin color, people of your background. It is with Christians of every kind. And I firmly believe that Satan is executing an attack on the oneness, the blood-bought oneness of Christ's people. Sixth, it gets even better. The hostility between peoples has ceased in the church. It's objectively stopped. Ephesians 2, 15 to 16, he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, Jew and Gentile, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Do you understand that this is not something subjectively that you and I transmit emotions at in order to make happen? This is not a ministry of good feelings where if you feel enough and I feel enough, then we can have some sort of racial or ethnic harmony. This is what Christ has accomplished. Hostility is dead. There is one new man in the blood of Christ. I'm not trying to trace out every eschatological thread here. We're talking about the cross of Christ, that there, there is just one body that God sees. There's one new man. Hostility has ceased. We sometimes hear that we should make reparations, pay reparations for past sins in America. Slavery, Jim Crow, segregation. Terrible, terrible systems. And yet, think about reparations in a biblical mindset. Yes, sin will have effects on successive generations, but nowhere in Scripture are we told to compensate people we have wronged. If anyone should have paid reparations, it was the Apostle Paul. Yes? The Apostle Paul was a terrorist. The Apostle Paul led to the killing of Christians. Is that what Paul said to do after becoming a Christian? Pay out money? to the Jewish people he had targeted, to the Christian people he had targeted? No, no, it was the cross that Paul preached and Paul urged as an article of faith. Seventh, so our work is this, to preach Christ who is peace. Christ is our peace. 1 Corinthians 22, we preach Christ crucified. Christ makes peace. Christ takes people who are being indoctrinated in evil and have participated in all forms of evil, and he makes them at peace through saving faith. So eighth, our demeanor then is this as Christians, not to live in resentment and anger and unbridled rage over the American past or the Western past. We we sorrow over those real injustices. And yet, our demeanor is to offer and grant forgiveness. We're a people of forgiveness. Vodibachum has said this on this point. Let us speak to the great ills and evils and sins of our day. Let us proclaim and trust in the gospel of Christ above all else. And let us never ever forget that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that we're all in desperate need of his grace and that none of us is exempt. What is he saying? He's saying let's grant forgiveness where it makes no sense. 
where the world doesn't understand it, where the world wants to live in resentment and hostility and division. We cannot. We approach this matter from a different, otherworldly, regenerate posture. Ninth, our confidence then is that now, living as salt and light, God will make the earth right. Revelation 19.11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. All things will be made right on the last day. So until then, let us be a people of Christ, a people the world does not understand, a people whose methods the world does not like, does not adopt. Let us be a people who preach, proclaim, love, and cling to Christ above all. Let's pray.